you could probably file this under, there was a thought given by a 19th century French philosopher, his name was André Gide, and Gide said that the reason why we repeat old truths over and over again is because we forget them. And so if you read a survey of classical human literature, certainly even predating biblical literature, even to modern times, you see the same things, themes, over and over again. In fact, the more you watch movies and TV, the more you find yourself less surprised about what you see and more bored by what you see because it is the same things churned over and over again. So you can file this under Gide's idea of restating old truths because perhaps we need to hear them. If you find yourself uh, planning a trip to go to Europe, inevitably I suspect what you'll end up doing, which many people end up doing, is trying to book someone to lead you on a Jewish tour of some old European city. I know myself years ago, I was standing on the Spanish steps in Rome, I was wearing a kippah, and there was a couple, maybe about 10 feet removed from where I was, holding a big map open and saying in a loud enough voice that I could hear it, I wonder where the shul is in the Jewish quarter. And I went over and I explained to them where they could find it. The fact that people, when they go to Europe or some other city, and one of their first instincts is to go to a place and look at the shuls, is something that we need to think about. That the story of synagogues is an ancient, provocative, and bizarre story. And I want to share some ideas about it with you on this morning. Perhaps another idea that can be impacted from this is about seven or eight years ago, when they were doing uh, some real estate development work in the old part of Oxford in England, they were tearing down a shopping center or strip mall or something, and they immediately realized that they needed to call them the Royal Archaeology Society. What they had uncovered in in very short while, what they realized was, is that they had, unco had uncovered the Jewish ghetto within old Oxford. How did they know that it was the, the corner of the Jewish ghetto of Old Oxford. Because there was a mikveh. And where were the mikvahs kept? They were kept in the synagogues and the shuls. Now in our time, we don't have to look back a thousand years ago, 500 years ago, to see the impact and echo of this idea of what synagogues are. Let's go to 1950. In 1950, the conservative Jewish movement issued what was considered to be a groundbreaking, some would say a earthquake-like ruling, that it was permitted if walking to synagogue was too difficult for you, that you could drive. Now, whether or not they were right to do that, and for the record, even within some of the most liberal elements of the Jewish world, there is still great debate over whether or not this was the right thing to do. But one of the reasons why they did do it was, is that in the post of the Second World War, what happened to the American, particularly the American Jewish communities, it happened to Canada a little bit later. But that people began to move out of the city centers. They moved into the suburbs. 
And the Jewish movements were adamant in saying to themselves that we needed to give people a means to come to the shul. That, where, that it used to be a time that people would go where the shul was. Now the Jewish movements believe that we needed to put the shul where the people were. But irrespective of whatever direction you were going in, that the shul had to be there. You might think that this is something obvious and simple, something utterly logical and simple, but the fact of the matter is none of this, the existence of this building where it is, and synagogues that dot this remarkable city and country and throughout all of North America, none of this is obvious. And why would that be? Because when you look at the earliest parts of biblical Judaism, we see two distinct elements. Number one, that there was no prayer. Jews of ancient time, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, did not have prayer services. The second thing was, is that where they worshipped was relegated to one particular location. So that particular location was the temple in Jerusalem. What they did in the temple in Jerusalem, by and large, was a system of sacrificial worship. And so what happened to create this from that? It is nothing less than perhaps the most remarkable thing to occur in Judaism. It was the greatest reform moment in the story of the Jewish people. After the destruction of the Second Temple, roughly around 71 of this common era, about 2,000 years ago, the ancient rabbis instituted a system of prayer worship three services a day that would mimic exactly the three sacrifices that occurred in the temple, and they created prayers that would fill that space. They did not lament the destruction of the temple in practice. They welcomed it. And the construction and building of places of worship would be, first and foremost, the great enterprise of their lives. Where did they get this idea from? From a small verse in the Torah portion for this morning. In the Torah portion for this morning, we hear the command given to the Israelites, the asuli migdash, the shechanti betocham, make for me a sanctuary that I can live amongst you. And the rabbis, the ancient rabbis said that if the temple in Jerusalem is no longer standing, then we must build something else to take its place. I want to point your attention to the fact that there is a symbol of just how radical and remarkable the effect of what the synagogue has become that you probably don't even pay attention to it. I'm not going to talk about the ark, which always, of course, faces in the direction of Jerusalem, the eternal light. All these things are remnants of what existed in the holy temple. But the fact that there are mezuzot inside of shuls because you're only supposed to put a mezuzah where you live, in a place where you sleep and where you live. So why then do we put mezuzot on our shuls? Because technically, halachically, you're not supposed to. The story of North American Jewry, very much like the story of European Jewry, is seen clearer when we talk about this in an obvious and simple way. 
that the rate and appreciation of what it means to identify as a Jew is closely linked with someone's attachment and membership to a synagogue. It is that simple. People who belong to synagogues, who have synagogue memberships, are much, much more likely to donate to causes that are Jewish, to the Federation, and to other Jewish causes. People who belong to synagogues are much, much more likely to, to, to donate to other charitable causes. But that the great flagpost of Jewish identification is not being a member of a Jewish social club. It is not being a member of the Federation. It is whether or not you are a member of a synagogue. In North America, we see this over and over again, that people who choose to join a synagogue, and I admit whether or not they attend, but those who join and become members of a congregation, that it is an inherent expression of their identity and affiliation with the Jewish people. And that is because, in the words of, the, of, this, of this wonderful, beautiful book called Pinin Elacha, uh, this rabbi from Israel, he wrote that synagogues are not simply places of prayer. That synagogues are containers of the values that hold us together as Jews. It is the reason why there is a mezuzah on the synagogue, despite the fact that I told you that you're not supposed to put them. Why is that the case? Because after the first crusades, when one in three Jews had been murdered in the Rhine Valley, and there were waves, waves of orphans, the orphans came and moved and lived inside of the synagogues. And that is the reason why we recite Kiddush on Friday night in the synagogue, even though you're going home to your table, because those orphans lived in the shul. And because they lived in the shul, the tradition became to put mezuzahs on there because they slept and they lived and they ate there. It is the reason why we call the synagogue a Beit Knesset, a place of gathering, not simply a Beit Filah, a house of prayer. Amongst European Jews, what do we call the synagogue? A shul. What does the word shul mean? It means a place of learning. In ancient, ancient rabbinic expression, one of the other names for a synagogue was Talpiot. What is Talpiot? It is the place of speech, of prayers, of whispers. It is the container of things that we hold dear to us, that we know long, long after the Jews may leave a place, that the whispers of the walls of the synagogue will hold the cries and tears and hopes and dreams of the Jews who once lived there. It is true that the Jews are not a race, but we are a people. It is true that the Jews are not just a religion, but we are also a people of faith. It seems to me that more than perhaps with the exception of the state of Israel, that the synagogue expresses fully what it means to be a Jew, all the things that we hold deep and clear within ourselves. But perhaps the story says it best. There's a story about a child who used to wander into the forest all of his time, and his father, who was a rabbi, once said to him, why do you keep going into the forest all the time? And the boy says, I am going there to find God. And the rabbi says to his son, but you know 
that God is everywhere, that God is the same everywhere. And the boy says, God may be the same everywhere, but I'm not. We go to synagogues because we're different here than anywhere else. Shabbat Shalom.